Right. So, uh, <laughs> the topic now is how not to be upset by things. Um, so the main tools we have of step four, there are three inventories. You've got the resentment inventory in the big book. You, you're all familiar with the big book inventory process in broadly. Okay. Um, you have the resentment inventory, the fear inventory, the sex inventory, um, the so-called sex inventory. It's more of a conduct inventory. But the interesting bit is the, uh, for our purposes, is the resentment inventory because it's going to explain how and why we get upset and give us the tools to not be upset where we have been upset. Now, um, the way the big book lays things out is pretty good, but it can be dead in the water unless you understand what's going on behind the scenes in the inventory. So let's have a look at the examples. Um, so it's on page 65 of the big book and it gives this example. So you're supposed to write this great big long list of all the people that you resent. Now, that's not just the people you feel uh, uh, resentful or angry at. It talks about other emotions. It talks about being hurt or threatened, being sore, being burned up having grudges, feeling injured, all the people who interfere with our lives. And so really, it's a list of all the things that upset you. It's not a resentment inventory, it's an upset inventory. So it's no good saying, well, I'm not resentful, I'm just uh, envious and bitter and scornful and contemptuous. But resentment? I have no resentment. No. If, if you've got any of those negative emotions in response to things, there's, we're going to use the word resentment as a technical word for that. So it's broader than the ordinary definition of resentment. The inventory itself broadens it out by using all of the other emotions. So this is an inventory of negative reactions whenever I am reacting negatively to something. And then it says the cause and the examples, one of the examples here, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown, the cause, his attention to my wife, affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. Now, for years, I would do inventories and I would hear people do inventories and they'd list all these endless things that had happened and then they'd say, this affects my sex relations, this affects my self-esteem, this affects my pride, this affects my pride, that affects my self-esteem. For hours, you're supposed to listen to this, apparently. <laughs> oh. And... They have no idea what they're saying. You have no idea what they're saying, but you've done what it said in the book, so uh, this must be a good step four and five. Uh, now, if, if that's as far as you get, well, that, that will do something for you. You'll probably realise, oh dear, I'm very self-centred. That's not very good, is it? Uh, but it doesn't really get you out of it. You need to do, you need to do something with all of this. Um, and... What's brilliant about this is, although it was written in 1939, uh, a lot more understanding has arisen since then about how to use this constructively to actually get rid of the upset in the first place. Now, the first point, have you ever said, um, uh, he makes me feel blah, blah, blah. Your behaviour makes me feel blah, blah, blah. So the thing out there appears to be causing the thing going on in there. And, or the other, a good example of where it's even more concise than that, he irritates me. What do you mean he irritates What does he do? What does the irritation look like? If you said to a thousand people, name something irritating, they'd all say a different thing. So he irritates me uh, doesn't tell us anything about the world, anything about what is going on out there. It's mixing up the event and my reaction to it. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. Um, we said earlier, well, we're responsible for ourselves. I'm responsible for my, emo my own emotions. Now, that doesn't appear to be consistent with the statement, he irritates me, she gets on my nerves, he did this and I felt that. It, how do you put those two together? And the truth is, 
my negative emotion in any situation is the consequence of not one thing but two and those two things are the thing that the other person is doing followed by my interpretation of it if i wasn't interpreting what was happening i wouldn't be feeling what i'm feeling have you ever seen a have you ever gone to a, a, a film seen a film with friends and each person reacts differently one person's upset another person's laughing everyone has a different reaction it's not the film which is creating the reaction if the film was creating the reaction everyone would have the same feelings at the same moment have the same commentary remember the same things everyone remembers something different everyone feels something different so it's not it was never about the film <laughs> so he never irritated me. My analysis, assessment and interpretation of what he did irritated me. And as soon as you start to see you've got these two components flowing into my emotion, as soon as you've got that insight, you start to get some power back. Because if you can change your analysis, interpretation, assessment of the situation, you don't need to feel what you've been feeling even if the event continues. Does that make sense so far? Mm -hmm. So now, how do you use the resentment inventory to achieve this? Well, the first way is we've got three columns. First column, person or institution. It could be an idea, it could be an ideology, it could be a law, it could be anything. But the thing which is causing the problem. Now, the second column, it's got to be We've got to separate them from us in this. Not this single phrase, he irritates me, which tells us nothing. I want to know exactly in the second column, what did you actually do? What was the actual behaviour or event? And um, I've, when I've worked with sponsees on this, it takes a long time to get to the truth sometimes. I remember someone wrote once, and this, was a, this is a brilliant example of it. Um, uh, column one, Jennifer. Column two, she hates me. Does she? Oh dear, what has she, what has she done? Well, she just hates me. No, no, she must have done something to indicate to you that she hates you. Well, what did she do? Well, she, she always criticises me in work meetings. I said, oh, we're getting somewhere now. We're getting to an actual thing that the person is saying or doing. So we're going to cross out, she hates me, and say, right, she always criticises me in work meetings. And I said, okay, now, so this is someone you work with? Yes, okay. Now, is, who is this? Is this a subordinate? Is this a colleague? Or is this my boss? Oh, it, it's my boss. Ah, uh, okay, so let's cross out some of that. My boss always criticises me in work meetings. I said, always? Does she criticise you in every work meeting that has ever taken place? Well, no. I said, it's not always. No, it's not always. So how often? Or maybe once a week. So now, second column. Once a week, my boss criticises me in work meetings. And then I said, she criticises you. Tell me what, what's actually happening. Well, I will present something and then she'll present, she, she'll say that's wrong. I think it's something. I said, does she actually use the words that's wrong? She said, well, no, she just presents a different view. Okay, so <laughs> second column. My boss sometimes presents a different view to me at work meetings. <laughs> We've now unpicked this whole story and we brought it back to the event. What is the event? And I said to this person, um, is it your boss's job to bring to bear on the work their more extensive experience? Well, absolutely. <laughs> so it's not even, they're not even doing anything wrong here. But we want, but to start to get to the truth, you've got to get the fact in the second column. And that takes a lot of work. You've got to, and you've got to strip away several layers of narrative and story built on top of 
the event, to peel it back to the event. And the things which you have to peel away, and this is why we're recording, so you don't have to write everything down, although you're welcome to. Um, Generalisation. She always does this. Extrapolation. So extrapolation is where if something happens three times, it's bound to happen forever. So builders do something wrong a couple of times. Oh, I'm never going to get a builder to repair the whatever. That's extrapolation. Um, speculation and interpretation. In this particular situation, this, this girl was, was speculating what her boss was thinking and interpreting the legitimate presentation of a different view as an expression of hatred. That's, in, that's not a fact, that's interpretation. So you've got generalisation, extrapolation, interpretation, uh, speculation. Uh, you've got distortion, you've got exaggeration. There's a wonderful line in the big book where it says, maybe your husband lives in that strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted or exaggerated. And I have a mind where if something upsets me, by the time I've retold the story 15 times, it's distorted and exaggerated from the original version. And I don't know if you've... Have you ever been in the situation where you get a call from someone about something that's happened and you think, well, that sounds terrible. That's awful. And you put the phone down. Half an hour later, you get a phone call from someone else involved in the same incident. You hear the other side of the same event and you think... Oh, well, no wonder. And it's comp it completely changes the complexion. I had a, 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 a friend of mine phoned up and said, I'm so angry with my, with my boyfriend. I wasn't invited to, his, uh, uh, to meet his friends. He, he's ashamed of me. He's ashamed of me. Turned out it was a birthday party for someone else where this, this old friend had invited his three closest friends, no spouses, no one else. It had nothing to do with shame or you miss one tiny aspect of the story it will change the whole thing those Agatha Christie novels about murders you check you get one extra bit of information the entire story changes so we've distortion and exaggeration and then the other favorite uh, for people in recovery is personalization assuming that no one does thinks or says anything except in relation to me. There couldn't possibly be a, a standard one you'll always get on a step four. Someone will always have, I resent Susan. Why? She ignored me. There's, it's always there. There's always a Susan ignoring you somewhere. And it turns out that all Susan was doing was walking past you in the corridor at work with a piece of paper in her hand, worried about a meeting in 10 minutes time. She doesn't care. She, it's not, it's not, it was never about you. So I do a lot of work with people on the second column to peel back those seven layers, generalisation, extrapolation, speculation, interpretation, distortion, exaggeration, personalisation, until we have the fact. Once we've got the fact, then we go on to the third column. Now, the third column, it's, there's a very interesting line here. You see, if you go through the world feeling things, it feels like you are affected by things. Why wouldn't it? Something happens, you feel something. Of course you're affected by something. Makes sense, doesn't it? You, you, an event occurs, you're affected. Now, the big book tells you you haven't been affected at all. What it says is, in most cases, we asked ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relations were hurt or threatened. Oh, so they were hurt or threatened. I wasn't hurt or threatened. My personal relations were hurt. My self-esteem was hurt. It's not me. It's these things. So what are, what are ambitions? What are personal relations? What is self-esteem? What is pride? And it gives you seven things that might be affected. Uh, the two easiest ones, personal and sex relations, how other people are relating to me. Sex relations, it's in, the, in that particular relationship. Uh, personal relations, everything else. <coughs> Ambitions, what I want. Security, what I need. Pocketbooks is my money. And then pride and self-esteem. My self-esteem is the picture I have of myself. 
pride is the picture I have of the picture you have of me. It's two, it's a picture of me via you. <laughs> it's still my picture of me. It's just a picture of me I'm putting inside your head. It's what I think you think. Now, the only reason these seven areas are affected is if I have a plan in those areas. So, uh, uh, I'm terrible at throwing the javelin. A, a school I went to was a very sporty school and they made you practice every single sport just in case you were good at it. And uh, they gave me a javelin one day and I was supposed to throw it and I, I let go at the wrong moment. I accidentally stabbed the thing into the ground in front of me. I'm terrible at throwing the javelin. I was also terribly mal-coordinated when it came to rowing. I couldn't hit a tennis ball. I was terrible at all of these things. Awful. But I had no pretension or ambition to be good at them. So when someone said, you're terrible at tennis, I'd say, yes. <laughs> so being, being, thinking of myself as terrible at tennis didn't cause me a problem because I didn't have any ambition to be otherwise. Other people thinking I was terrible at tennis, um, no problem because I had no ambition to be viewed as good as, I was terrible, it was a joke. They used to have to, to, to draw lots who was going to play tennis with me because it was no because I couldn't hit the ball back. So thinking ill of myself or other people thinking ill of me doesn't affect me unless I believe they shouldn't, uh, that the image should be different. How different when you've done a lovely piece of work at work, you think, oh, this is marvellous, they're going to like this, and you send it to them and they hate it. Now it's a different matter. Now the fact that they think ill of you is a problem because you've got a plan that they must think well of you. So what I've discovered, I'm never upset unless I have a plan. And the purpose of the third column is to discover what's the plan? What's the plan? Um, I, I, personal relations. Um, I heard someone saying the other day that they were terribly up they were terribly upset and offended that their sponsee had, had uh, drunk again. And they were, they were angry, they had all of this range of emotions. When I find out that a sponsee is drinking again, well, I, I, I'd rather they weren't, but it doesn't bother me terribly. It's their, it's their alcoholism, it's not mine. Um, it's not the event. Different people respond the same way. I don't have a plan sponsees must stay sober or I'm going to be upset. This person had a plan. The spon and so the third column, first column, John. Second column, he drank again. Third column, personal relations. He should stay sober. Unless he had had the plan, John should stay sober. He couldn't be upset when the kid relapsed. And it works all the way down. So the purpose of the third column is to find out what the plan is. And the way I do it, as I say, right, how do I want, um, I'll give you one about my other half. Okay, uh, first column, Jonathan. Second column, he leaves the heating on and then when it gets too hot, opens the window. <laughs> Makes no sense. So, uh, in the past, now I work around it. But in the past, that used to upset me. So personal relations. He should turn the heating down. He shouldn't open the window instead. So I, I've clearly got a plan. If I didn't have a plan, it, he couldn't have upset me. But the question is why? So why does, it, why does it bother me? Well, first of all, it affects my security because I see this as symbolic of wasting electricity and I worry about the environment and I'm frightened of environmental catastrophe. So every time he leaves the heating on and opens the window, I can only be okay if I'm not reminded of environmental catastrophe. Well, that's a pretty tall order to go through the world. Uh, like, I'm fine as long as nothing reminds me of environmental destruction and you're living in Western society. How's that gonna work out? You're gonna be reminded a hundred times a day. I'm creating that discomfort in myself by having a plan for the universe. And the plan for the universe under, under security means I can only be okay if 
And then there's a whole list of, I can only be okay if they're okay. I can only be okay if, pride, if everyone thinks well of me all the time. As a friend of mine said, all I want is to be loved, adored and respected by everyone at all times. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> I, and so what I come out with from the, th- uh, and also actually that one went on. By the time I told him a few times about, you know, you, you just give them the information that it's better to close the window and maybe turn the heat down. Um, obviously they don't have this information, why else would they be doing it? Mm-hmm. So you give them the information a few <laughs> times because they're not very bright, so you have to repeat yourself. And then it becomes a pride thing. Uh, if he respected me, if he respected me, he'd do as I. And so I, I've got another, I wonder, personal relations. Jonathan must obey me. So I've actually discovered this is not about respect. This is about obedience. And I had no idea until I did this inventory that I was demanding obedience of my other half. And a friend of mine said, is he your slave? Why are you demanding obedience here? Why should this other person obey you? What authority do you have to command another human being? And also the, the insanity and pride. So he's, he's opening the window because he doesn't think much of you. Really? You th- oh, it, again, those distortions of thinking in the second column. They're all there in the third column as well. That was nothing to do with me. The wind, the, our little window and central heating system has got nothing to do with the environment of the planet, really. <laughs> Distortion and exaggeration. And so using those two columns, I find out what it is in the world that is bothering me and keep it completely separate from the plan that I have for the world. Now, the way to stop being upset is therefore to get rid of the plan. If there is no plan, nothing can upset me. And it's pretty clear if I've taken step three and said, right, God, here is my will, here is my life. I'm not supposed to be having plans anymore. God is the director, I'm the actor. The actor is supposed to go to God for the script and for the directions and is not supposed to be writing the script himself. He's the actor, not the script writer. So all of these plans in the third column are how I'm playing God, having plans about all the things I think I want and need to be okay, plans about my money. Oh, because of course this affected the money too because of the gas bill. Um, uh, plans about how other people should see me Um, those plans had to go and I can do one of four things when I discover I have a demand plan expectation they're all the same thing I can do one of four things Um, the first thing I can do with plans and demands is drop them why would you drop a plan because it's ludicrous it's insane to have them in the first place they cause fear and frustration and distress. And have you ever got your own way and it's a hollow victory because you feel dead inside and everyone hates you? Okay, so, so, so much for the demands. Well, they're, they're, they're producing such good results in your life. You wanna hold on to these demands which are producing such good results. A good example of a demand that's ludicrous. So I, I run, when I run along a canal, my ego doesn't like it when someone is faster than me and they run past me and immediately I help push them in the water. Um, <laughs> just for, just from, I haven't pushed anyone in water for a very long time, uh, all day. Um, so that's an example of a ludicrous demand. If I got my own way, like no one ever runs faster than me, well, what would that, that doesn't achieve anything, doesn't mean anything, it's pointless, it's ridiculous. Um, demanding that your other, uh, that your other half be free of character defects between now and the end of time. Ludicrous because it's, it's not gonna happen. To you know, stop wishing for things, but stop demanding things which are impossible. So a lot of the third column demands that get thrown up uh, can simply be dropped because they are ridiculous. There's another load where, let's say your other half is constantly late and you're you know 
it puts other people out, it's inconvenient, it's awkward, there's, there's reminding, there's all sorts of reasons why it, it causes a bit of stress. Um, but how about, and, and life is easier when people are on time, let's face it. If everyone was on time all the time, everything would run more smoothly. So it's not itself an unreasonable thing. Wanting, you know, wanting to be the fastest runner on the canal path is not a reasonable thing to want. Liking things to be orderly and on time, not unreasonable, but how about we downgrade that from being a demand to a preference so that when we don't get our own way, it's not the end of the world. So we'd rather the kids do well at school. We'd rather people don't relapse. Uh, we'd rather people look after the environment. We'd rather people close the window. <laughs> But if they don't, that's fine too. And anyone knows the difference between a preference and a demand. The third uh, type of um, uh, demand, sometimes a good example of this is, is with envy. So two types of envy that one comes across uh, a lot is the first type is when you see someone being very successful in something. Uh, let's say in religious practice, sometimes people will envy people who are very diligent about their religion and think, well, I wish I was like that. Well, if it's that important to you, you're going to have to do what they do. You get the same in recovery. Well, I wish I had their program. Well, maybe if you took the actions they took, you would have their program. So if it's that important to you, work for it. If you want to fly business class, you're going to have to find a job where you earn more money. Stop moaning about people who've made that choice and made the sacrifices which attend that choice. So that's the third thing you can do with demand is, is work for its attainment. And if, it's, if something is really important to you, maybe that's the point at which you set the boundary. So if it's really important for me... Uh, Actually, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go down that path any further. That's pretty clear. If if you if it's important and it's legitimate, work for it. Set the boundary. There is a fourth category of unpleasantness in life, which uh, you can minimize it how you like, but it's always going to be tough. Uh, and the things which are always tough are uh, number one, uh, uh, physical discomfort is very difficult to rationalize away it's always going to be it's always going to even if you manage to rationalize it away it's going to take a toll physical pain cold heat ailments second thing is hormonal disturbances i'm given to understand that women have more hormonal disturbances uh, than men do but men have them as well um there's not a lot you can do about that it's just a little bit tough um Conflict, unavoidable conflict. Sometimes ha it's a, sometimes you have to sue people. Sometimes people are going to sue you. It's not fun. You can rationalise it. You can work the program on it, but it's going to take an emotional toll. Being in the presence of profound negativity will drain you. And you go into a room full of very unhappy people. You're going to be affected by the profound unhappiness in the room. There is no way around that because people's, there's something that leaks below the level of consciousness. You know, when you walk into a room full of happy people, immediately it lifts you up. And it's because there is something flowing between people and that can't be, and shouldn't be blocked. And there's compassion, uh, that shouldn't be shut down. We're, I think we're supposed to feel, if you see someone suffering, you're supposed to feel at least momentarily their suffering. It's what prompts altruistic action. And there are surely other ones as well. But what my experience is, if I get rid of ludicrous demands, downgrade reasonable demands to preferences or work for their attainment, I've got enough emotional resources left over at the end to handle the stuff which is, un oh, the other thing which is unavoidable is, is uh, adjustment to major change. Moving house, moving job, different home group, losing a sponsor, getting a new sponsor, uh, death. Um, change material circumstances, however good your programme, you're not going to sleep well for a while, let's face it. And it's not because you're not trusting God, it's just the human, the human organism takes a while to adjust to change. But those are dealable with if all of the other optional stuff is cut out by having a different attitude. 
but then there's something else that that goes on um once i i've worked to see how ridiculous most of my upset is that i'm wishing for things which are not reasonable or plausible or wouldn't even make me happy if i got them and and a good example of that are money and material success i'm sure we all know people who are materially successful who are successful in their careers who are successful academically who have money who are as miserable as anything and full of complaint so the idea that well i'm not happy because i haven't got the money or the, well well look at look at the nifty job people are doing being happy with money and that the papers the magazines are full of it people who have everything and, and are unhappy um but there is this problem of of resentment which i think of as uh, where my mind if you've ever seen a a a a puppy with a sort of rag that is very attached and it's just always biting at the rag and won't let it go and you try and you try and pull the rag away from the puppy and it it clamps its teeth ever ever tighter and you're doing the tug and war that's like me and the resentment when my mind keeps going back to it again and again and again and again and again anyone with me on that one okay just 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 checking you've ever had a resentment and so the problem is that my mind is being used to nag at something it cannot do anything about and what is going on the way the ego is built is it's built to attack so if something doesn't follow the ego's plan even if the ego's plan is insane that person deserves to be attacked according to the ego and the ego doesn't have any physical means to do so so it says right next best thing let's attack them in our minds by thinking about how dreadful they are rerunning the scenario again and again and again and eventually i'm going to attack them so successfully it will defend me somehow against whatever they're doing it will stop them from doing it this is the ego's logic it's completely insane but it is what it's doing this constant mental attack and page 66 of the big book is great because it gives me three reasons why i want to be free of resentment the first reason is it is futile have you ever noticed that the that getting angry doesn't actually stop people from doing what they're doing they're going to do what they're doing anyway someone said about writers from the past there is no it's no good haranguing them for not conforming to contemporary values it won't change what they wrote in 1754 <laughs> just because you get very angry at them it's not and all resentment is like that it's, it it does not achieve its aim it doesn't protect me it doesn't change the circumstance. Why am I doing it then? Makes no sense. So it's futile. It's also fatal. Uh, most people I've known, and I, I used to get ill a lot with gastrointestinal stuff and in, constant infections, constant, um, in my 20s. And I, I very rarely get uh, incapacitated by any illness anymore. And I'm pretty sure in my case, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm pretty sure in my case it's because I was full of resentment the whole time. I was attacking, it kind of makes sense, I was full of attack in my mind and then it was coming up, my body was permanently attacking itself. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't that make sense? And so many of my friends in, in, in Al-Anon or who need Al-Anon, uh, gastrointestinal problems, skin conditions, allergies, sense physical sensitivities to things, chronic fatigue, all sorts of things which clear up when they calm down. So fatal doesn't just mean for alcoholics they'll drink and then do whatever they do when they drink and you know suffer because of it. It's more than that. Uh, even in Al-Anon it'll kill you eventually. Uh, futile and fatal and the worst thing it's embarrassing my I asked my other half once who has to make big decisions which affect a lot of people and whenever you make a, a big decision which affects a lot of people someone's going to get upset and say so publicly in national newspapers that sort of stuff and I said I said to him when someone you know at a council meeting or whatever gets up and and is unpleasant about you and is angry how do you deal with other people being resentful at you and he said well first of all 
I'm embarrassed for them because it's so childish. Secondly, they need to get over it because it gets in the way. But the truth is, whenever I'm upset by anything, my emotions are being controlled by the person that actually I have my emotions, my actions dictated by other people's bad behaviour. And if something they do does cause me to jump around inside, I'm, sh I'm sh surely not going to tell them. Um, so, I've got three reasons for wanting to be rid of this emotional upset. Um, futility, fatality, sheer embarrassment. Now, um, I'm left with, well, what do I actually do? Uh, I do need to do the work to unpick those demands and basically develop a bit, a bit more emotional maturity in my attitude. But I'm still left with a mind that goes nah, 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 about whatever it is that they've done. You what you know? You go to bed and you put you you put the resentment to bed like a little angry child, put a dummy in it, and you wake up the next morning. You go and you look in the car, <laughs> and it, it, it's ready to go again. Sometimes, some I don't know about you, but you know, so, some people will have those little devices where they can hear the baby crying in the next room. I've done that with resentments, where if the resentment starts crying in the middle of the night, I, I sort of keep half awake just in case it needs to tell me something. Yeah, I don't want to miss anything. Because uh, that would be denial. Um, so I've got to do something about this mind that uh, nags at things like the puppy with the rag. Um, and what the big book suggests is that... Uh, uh, basically, I look at it from their point of view, top of 67. So they're sick. What does sickness mean? Uh, when I behave badly, it is because I'm deluded into believing that something out there needs to change for me to be okay. When I'm behaving badly, I'm deluded into believing that something out there needs to change for me to be okay which is why I'm going controlling and manipulating and fixing and organizing, because if I get everything out there right, I'll be, I'll be happy and satisfied. Page 61 um, uh, of the big book. Victim of the delusion that he can wrest happiness and satisfaction from this world if only he manages well. So this is the delusion that, that, that if I get everything organized and it's now taped down and perfect, I'll go, oh, now I'm happy and satisfied. That's the, and the big book calls this a delusion, that if you get, basically, if you get your own way, you'll be okay. And so that's where all that can, if you've got a plan for reality, other people have to play ball. There are very few plans which don't involve other people's cooperation. So I have to control, manipulate, fix, change, organize. Now, if they're operating on the same software, so they believe they've got a plan too. What are the chances that everyone's got the same plan? Pretty remote. So the plans conflict. So this other person is doing exactly the same as me. If I'm upset, I have a plan. I'm deluded into thinking, if the plan comes off, I'll be okay. Now, if they're behaving badly, they're doing the same thing. They have a plan. They believe if the plan comes off, they'll be okay. Oh my God, they're just like me. And that's the point of seeing things from other people's point of view. Whatever bad behaviour I've ever believed, I've ever seen in anyone else, it is always because they believe in their own plan. They believe if their plan comes off, they'll be all right. And it may look insane to me, but it's going to look sane to them. It's going to look reasonable to them. Even people that attack and are malicious think on some level it's defending <coughs> them. They're using the same software as me. They're using the same ego system as me. And my sponsor describes people who are on an ego kick as being asleep. So this is, have you ever come across someone who is sleepwalking and is babbling or, or someone who has a very high fever and is babbling all sorts of rubbish? What I've been taught to do is to see myself and others when, if we're acting out as simply people who are asleep. And you wouldn't take personally what someone says when they're babbling in their sleep or babbling when they're delirious with a temperature of 40 degrees, because it's not real, it's not who they are. Their ego is in charge.
So my my uh, gripe is never really with them. It's with the ego and their how their ego is behaving in the world. Inside that is a person who is trapped by their own ego. And when it says we had to recognise that people were sick, that's what it means. It's people who are trapped by their own ego. And that deserves compassion. And I look at my own case, when I've been trapped in ego behaviour, I've been in situations where I want to get out and I can't, and I'm trapped. And I have to extend the same compassion to them. What must it be like for them, trapped in that life, unable to act differently, driven by emotions and forces they have no control over? And once I realise as well that um, I'm not my own image, I'm not my circumstances, and I'm not my body. I happen to be living in a body at the moment, um, but that is not who I am. I'm not a piece of flesh, I'm a spirit living inside a body. The image of me, that's, a, that's not a real thing. There's a great AA speaker called Chuck Chamberlain who says, I have no more image of myself than I have of a walrus. And I, if I had an image of myself, I wouldn't know what to do with it. What would it add to my life? This image of me is, it's a nothingness, the bloated nothingness of self. <clears throat> so I'm not my body. I'm not my uh, image of myself or anyone else's image of me. I'm not my circumstances. If someone took any of you and plonked you in a different country, in a different set of circumstances, would you be less you? Would you suddenly be someone else or would you still be you? You'd still be you. The circumstances are not you. So, uh, no one can hurt or attack me. They can hurt or attack the image, they can hurt or attack the body, they can hurt or attack the circumstances, but they can't hurt or attack me. Now, there are different religious traditions on where the soul or the spirit comes from. One of them would suggest that it's literally blown into you by God into the, into the flesh and that that spirit will go back to God afterwards. That spirit cannot be damaged by anything that anyone does, which means that no one presents any risk to me. So all of their ego acting out is nothingness absolute nothingness so I'm going to get upset at the human being who is trapped in an ego which is literally doing nothing that makes no sense that's buying into the ego system so what I've got to do is have compassion for the other person and <clears throat> understanding takes me about 99% of the way there with forgiveness and forgiveness is not saying they're a terrible person but I'm going to see myself as above them. Forgiveness is the withdrawal of judgment against the person, against the spirit or the soul trapped inside this ego system. It's to recognise that my, my complaint is not against the person. That forgiveness, reason and understanding, um, talking through gets me 99% of the way there. There's a, a final 1% which I need. And that's the step that God must take at my instigation. God saved me from being angry, says page 67. God saved me from being angry. Why? Because when I'm angry, I'm the one that's in trouble. I've fallen into darkness and delusion again. Um, thy will be done. How can I be helpful to this person? And um, uh, it also says we avoid retaliation or argument which means those mental narratives those mental attack narratives have to stop and they have to stop um they have to stop now now it's going to take a bit of practice my mind will constantly not so much now but it still does it tempt me to engage in one of those attack narratives which usually starts with a listing of all the things the other person has done and the explanation for anyone who's listening as to why it's wrong. I don't know who I think is listening, <laughs> but the narrative is there. Um, 
I'm tempted to play the tape again. And what I've got to keep doing is pressing stop, <coughs> taking the tape out, putting it on the shelf. I look round, someone's put the tape back in the, in the, in the slot again and press play. But this has to stop. My brain only gets rewired if I don't permit this narrative to continue. And God will do for me what I can't do for myself, but God won't do for me what I can do for myself. I'm not in charge of the temptations that come into my mind. I am in charge of how I respond to them. So when all of those crazy narratives come into my mind, um, I have... Uh, I have a number of options. Number one, God's will is for me to be here and present, doing whatever I'm doing whenever I'm doing it. So if I'm at work, my job is to work. My job, If I'm doing the washing up, my job is to concentrate on the washing up. If I'm listening to the radio, I'm listening to the radio. And the key words are gently and persistently. My job is to gently and persistently draw my mind away from the attack narrative to where I am right now. So it's coming back to the present, coming back to the task at hand. If necessary, asking myself, what can I see? What can I hear? What can I smell? What can I touch? What is actually real? What is actually happening right now? Because whenever there is a sin, there are actually two sins, because there's the sin of doing what you're not supposed to be doing and then there's the sin of omission it's what you should be doing instead so when you're thieving in a shop it's not just the fact you're thieving in a shop it's the fact you're stealing yourself away from the place you're supposed to be doing something virtuous or good or beneficial does that make sense so there are always both sides so whenever i'm resentful i'm actually stealing myself away from the present and the moment that i'm supposed to be in so i come back to the moment uh, the second thing I can do is to uh, uh, basically to uh, run a different narrative in my mind. And often the best thing I can do, the Psalms are incredibly helpful. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 91, which I've mentioned before, I, I had that memorised uh, for a very long time as the antidote to anxiety. So the whole of Psalm 91 is all about uh, protection, invoking God's protection as a deal. I trust in God, I get the protection back, and the trust invokes the protection. And the protection is against, you know, oh, you've got rocks you might trip over, and uh, lions and vipers and pestilence, and all of these, all of these terrible possible things. And you're protecting in, in different ways from each one. Those ideas of the things that I'm protected. I'm not protect. I don't need protection from the world. I need protection from the attack thoughts in my mind. So it talks about treading on vipers. I think of God helping me to tread on the viper of my own attack thoughts. Because it's all poetic language. It's not really about vipers and lions and stuff. It's a, it's about, I mean, how often did people need actual protection from a lion? It wasn't a major issue on a Wednesday. What was a major issue on a Wednesday was, was being angry at the neighbour for doing whatever he was doing with a cubit of this or a cubit of that. Um, so those are the enemies, is those attack thoughts. And so I would learn, I learnt that psalm and I would re repeat it over and over and over again until the attack thought stopped. Because it's impossible to run two narratives successfully in your mind at the same time. So sometimes the best I can do is block the negative narrative with another one. And it was so powerful that after a few months of doing this, it, even if I just felt anxiety start to rise up within me, I'd start saying Psalm 91 and it would go back down, like before it even got a hold. And so it becomes this defensive shield against that thinking. Um, the third thing to do, if my resentment really, if I really can't get rid of it, um, I've got a, a friend, must always have at least one of these friends, to whom I will say, um, I've got a situation here. Now, I am wrong. How do I know I'm wrong? Because I'm upset. That's how I know I'm wrong. But I can't see how I'm wrong. Can you show me how I'm wrong? 
The last thing you want is people to pat your damp little hands and say, that must be really hard. As soon as you have that, those people, they're lovely, but they don't help in a crisis because they, they will deepen your narrative. They will justify your upset. You need people who are going to be able to lift you up out of it and say, your observation that other people have character defects, well, well observed, not exactly news, but well observed. Now, the question is, why are you upset by this particular example of something which has been documented since the beginning of time, namely the existence of character defects in human beings? This is about you, it's not about them. Where is your thinking flawed? And that's the whole point about resentment. We're uh, never, I don't think, genuinely, even injustice, sometimes people say, but this is just resentment. If you think of all of the injustices in the world, unless you're equally upset by all of them, you're, you're being very selective. I mean, uh, a friend of mine says, um, when I was upset about something, and I said it's so unjust, he said, well, I never hear you complaining about organ harvesting in China or the, or the white slave trade in, in Libya or, 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 or blood diamonds in, in wherever they have blood diamonds. So, so uh, if you're really so just, why don't you spread your justice evenly? Why are you, oh, you're concerned with justice in as far as it relates to you. So this is not about justice, <laughs> this is about you. And I've got friends who are criminal barristers who are able to interrogate the rubbish out of me, the justifications. And so it's very important for me to find people who will not buy into it and help me see where my thinking is, has, where I've built up uh, narratives out of tiny little incidents into these great big stories. And I'll just finish on, on one thing. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday who was telling a very impressive story last week about about harassment and I understand this uh harassment is well, I've been harassed it's not very nice uh I had death threat once which was very exciting um <laughs> it is you feel a lot oh you feel alive when you get a death threat um but anyway I said to this person so what what's happened well they did this I said did you see them no, but I know it was them. How do you know? Oh, well, they did that. <laughs> and there was something else. And we couldn't find anything that had actually been done. But the story had been told so many times, it had become reality. And I've done that. I've done that so many times. And so that's the point, as I need to wake up out of this dream world of endless attack narratives and uh, go and play in the playground. Any questions? <laughs> right, okay, so, so a couple of, of uh, we need to do a couple of examples. The first one is the, is the late, um, the late planes, how to deal with the late planes, for example, because that's a, that produces a genuine problem if someone is late for a plane and you're going to miss the plane, you have to pay money to get on another plane. And the second one is, is a very good example, actually. The, the, uh, uh, so if someone calls you up and you realise afterwards you've been manipulated, maybe you've agreed to something you shouldn't have agreed to, or, or maybe you haven't agreed to it, but they even tried to manipulate you. Okay, so how I would deal with both of those. Um, uh, with the, the, the missing planes and missing trains and missing these and missing those. Uh, so I, my question to myself is, what is my demand? Um, one of my demands is of myself, personal relations against myself. I should never miss a plane. Well, why should I never miss a plane? How about if the world was such that I'm going to miss a number of planes and there's not a problem with that, but you have to pay extra money. Whose money is it? I've taken step three and I've given my will and life to God. So the money is not my money, it's my higher power's money. The problem is the demand. A friend of mine, actually plane related, he made a mistake, he, he had a work trip and he um, 
organised in such a way he did he tacked a personal trip on the end of the work trip and the way the money was claimed the firm said oh you've made a mistake with this we're going to have to fine you for 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 doing this and this is going to go on your record you're fine it's fine but it is going to go on your record and he couldn't he couldn't handle the fact he'd made this mistake and we talked through it and he he realized uh Oh, so the demand I'm making of myself is I should never make catastrophic financial mistakes. If I readjust my perception of the world, say it's fine to make catastrophic financial mistakes. Everyone's going to make them. This was just my turn. Suddenly, he can now be okay when he makes it because it was the mistake that was always going to happen. So I'm, I'm going to miss trains. Hopefully not today. I'm going, I'm going to miss trains, I'm going to miss planes. If I stop seeing those things as problems, it won't bother me when they happen. On the manipulation front, um, there's someone that's trying to manipulate me at the moment and it hasn't got to critical level, but I can see it happening. And uh, uh, on a couple of occasions, I accidentally gave in to it and then realized afterwards that I'd been tricked. And again, uh, what so what it's not what is my part is what is my demand my demand is that no one should ever manipulate me why should I be free of other people trying to manipulate me it's it's a completely ordinary thing for people to do everyone gets a turn to be on the business end of someone else's manipulation why should I be exempt there's no reason why I should be it's fine people have always had character defects I need to learn to deal with them and then on the on the other side let's say I give in to it why should I never make the mistake why should I of course I'm going to make mistakes if it's fine to make mistakes I'm fine when it happens the thing is that I didn't give in to the manipulation and I was at the receiving end of number five false um, as a consequence of me not giving in to the manipulation there was a consequence that really made me upset and I still didn't give in but it was, it was bad. And uh, there's, if you sit back, meditate on it, you'll find there's demand. There's, a, there's, a, there's always a judgment and there's always demand. So one of the things the big book says is that a situation isn't entirely our fault. That's fine. So everyone has an input into the situation. But it says on page 62 that our troubles are of our own making. Now, the trouble is not the situation. My trouble is my emotional disturbance at the situation. I can only be disturbed if I have a negative judgment of it. So whatever that consequence was, it's the negative judgment of the consequence which is causing the problem. It's not the consequence. A friend of mine has cancer at the moment and has made the decision, I'm not going to get upset about this. This is, and she's having to have an operation, and she's had the operation a few days ago. Uh, and we as a family, and, and the, you know, the, the, the son, and we've all decided, look, one in three people is gonna get cancer. We're gonna deal with it. We're gonna be practical about it. There's gonna be pain. There's gonna be inconvenience. We're gonna have to have time off work, but we're not gonna make a drama out of it. And there's been, no one has given any negative assessment of it. It's simply, it's a, it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. And we can deal with it because we haven't got the narrative built on top. So that whatever the consequence was, the problem is not the consequence, the problem is the narrative on top of it. The problem is the, oh, the resistance of it. It's not reality which causes pain, it's the resistance of reality. When a bomb goes off, it's the shut windows which shatter, not, not the open ones. If all the windows are open, the blast goes through. It's the windows which are shut that will shatter when the shockwave comes through. So I've got to have the windows open to let so-called bad events come through my life without resisting them. It's if I resist them, they will batter me. But that might take some filtering. I didn't know I was supposed to open the window, and I don't know where the windows are. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Hi, can I ask yes. what you mentioned about the plea, right, and the financial loss or whatever it was. Um, that boils down to saying every single act comes from God, so 
whatever's going to happen is going to happen almost. If I'm meant to miss it, I'll miss it. Is that what? Uh, that's slightly, you're getting slightly difficult theology there because um, uh, once we leave aside the question of miracles and interference in the laws of physics, let's say that when the, when the, the uh, the second temple fell, that's the end of all that. We're now in laws of physics. Um, uh, God sets the laws of physics and doesn't appear, for instance, to interfere with gravity. We've never found an instance of gravity being interfered with or any of the other basic laws of physics. Um, the second factor in what happens in the universe is this immensely complex interaction between the laws of nature and human beings' free will. And so once you've got people who are acting freely, to say that God willed that to happen is to say that that will is not actually free. Does that make sense? Because if God is allowing people to make mistakes, maybe, um, so, so God will set up the ability for people to do this or do that, but it's up to them what they do. The danger with the fatalism is you start to say that bad things are good or that God willed particular people's death in a particular way on a particular occasion and it starts that can be that can cause problems theologically. Uh, if you if you believe in free will, then you have to believe that people have the right to make mistakes and there will be consequences of those. Does that make sense? Yeah, but does that not mean that someone should try and take action before missing a plane? Not just say, well, my spouse is always late. Um, what are the odds? You know, there are a certain amount of people that miss planes every day and we're just going to be the one of those sort of people. Does that not mean you should take action? It's, we're back to the different types of demand. So what I do is being on time makes things wrong ultimately so have that as a preference not a demand mm -hmm. but there's a limit how much you can push mm -hmm. without becoming someone that no one wants to be around <laughs> any other questions so you're saying you can do your bit and then step back basically. yeah mm -hmm. it's a bit like the pain and suffering What's going to be is going to be, but it's what I add onto it. Yeah. That's the suffering. Free will. That's the free will, as we say. Mm -hmm. Right. These are concepts in our religion that we, you know, we have. We do believe in free mm -hmm. will. And it's another whole huge topic. You know, God knew that this was going to be, then is it really free will? Like oh, no, there's an answer to that. There's a simple answer to that. <laughs> From the perspective of time, everything which is in the future is unknown. Right. If God is out, outside time, looking through, standing at the side, you see, we're looking straight on. We see ahead and we see behind. There are some cultures, by the way, where the past is seen as ahead of you and the future is seen as behind which makes more sense because you can see the past but you can't see the future anyway we see the future as ahead and the past as behind if god is outside god can see the past present and the future so even though everything is known in the moment you have free will but it's only because god is outside time that god can see what you're going to do it's not because it's predetermined right yeah there are some neat science fiction films about that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask again for a definition between um, personal relations and sex relations? You said sex relations is conduct. Uh, when I do the so when I do the resentment inventory third column, when I'm looking at if someone's behaviour has offended me. If they've broken one of my rules or not followed one of my scripts in the sexual domain, I put it under the heading sexual relations. Anything else goes under the heading personal relations. What would not be under personal relations? Any interpersonal 
Yeah, it's anything but anything okay. which doesn't involve yeah. a kind of sexual jiggy. Okay. Thank you. Mm. Anything else? Lovely. Should we say the serenity prayer? Would you like to? Serenity. Accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change 